We're continuing in Ephesians this morning as we uh, look now in uh, chapter 5. As Paul continues to uh, uh, move on through the uh, practical implications of the truth that he uh, laid out in the first uh, three chapters. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 15 uh, to 21 of, uh, of chapter 5. You know, there are uh, some sermons you preach uh, for yourself uh, more than others. And uh, boy, this is one of them for me. I'll tell you, I, I read this one and I thought, oh gosh, do I really have to? Do I really have to preach this? But I do, not only because it's here, but because I need it, uh, probably more than anybody else in the room. But uh, it also uh, convinces me that I'm probably not the only one in the room that needs it. So let me read it, and uh, we'll begin. Paul writes. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that uh, by your inspiration, Paul covers so many uh, different and important topics, practical everyday living. That this day we have the privilege of, uh, of hearing more of your wisdom given to us through him. And pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, conduct these things not only to our minds, but to our hearts and to our wills. That as we go forth from this place, we might go with the greater dependence upon you and a greater anticipation of your wonderful working out of your purposes in and through our lives. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The 1989 film Dead Poets Society was a, uh, a film starring uh, Robin Williams. And uh, basically it was all about this, uh, this aristocratic and conservative uh, boys prep school. Uh, it was entitled, uh, it was called the Welton Academy in Vermont. It's a fictional school. The Welton Academy in Vermont. And it took place in the late 50s. And Williams uh, stars as uh, John Keating, who's basically a literature uh, professor, and he tries to uh, uh, stimulate his, uh, his very conservative and uh, uh, conforming students to, uh, to break out of their mold and to, uh, to take a bite of life. And, uh, and he tries to do it through inspirational uh, teaching, as well as through some, uh, some witty sayings and challenges that he throws at them, uh, like, suck the marrow out of life. And carpe diem sees the day. Well, believe it or not, I think this is really an excellent description of uh, how Christians are to live as well. Sucking the marrow out of life and seizing the day. Now, you may think that's odd, but I think it's exactly what Paul says in verse 15 when he tells us, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise See, in the context, you remember that in verse 14 he said, listen, be careful because you can easily fall asleep spiritually. 
It is an easy thing to do. And if you fall asleep spiritually, you miss an awful lot of the good and important things in life. And then in verse 16, he tells us we have to be careful and make the most of our time because the days are evil. Even if you're awake, you can be distracted. Even if you're awake, you can be drawn off to to things that are of lesser meaning. Don't give you the kind of satisfaction that a, a truly full Christian life would give. But instead of saying, suck the marrow out of life, or carpe diem, you know, which gotta gotta admit, it's gotta kinda grabs you a little bit. Paul just says, live wisely. Well, it may not be have the quite same panache, but nevertheless, the point is the same. He wants us to live lives that are wise, lives that are full, lives that are satisfying and meaningful to us, as well as to God. Now this stands in direct conflict to an awful lot of what goes on in our society today, and especially one of the things that literally afflicts millions and millions of people in our country. Not only our country, in all of uh, Western society, and that is people are bored. Let me spell it for you. B-O-R-E-D. People are bored. I read a letter to uh, the businessinsider.com from a Russian immigrant yesterday. It's really interesting. This this is just a small snippet of it. He lives in New Hampshire. Okay, and this is really current. And he writes this. He says, lack of resources has forced us to live according to the Soviet model. Three generations under one roof. He said, there are six of us, of which only one works, who is, consequently, exasperated and embittered. He goes on to say, the rest of the household is gradually going insane from idleness and boredom. The television is never turned off. The female side of the family has been sucked into social networks. Everyone is cultivating his own special psychosis. And I understand that millions of families throughout America live this way. Now, we might think that that's a little bit exaggerated. But the reality of boredom in our culture, indeed boredom in our own lives at times, is eminently demonstrated by the very fact that all you have to do is think about how many hours a week your TV is on, or how many banal video games or movies or uh, iPod uh, tunes you listen to, Right? You can go on, the list is endless. We fill our times with rot. Why? Because we're bored. That's why. Because we're not literally fully and completely engaged in things that are really meaningful to us, things that really motivate us, things that draw out of us and demand of us the best that we have to offer. And Christians are numbered among those. And I stand before you as one. I too. And I guess that there are more of us here. So if you're bored to any degree with your life, if you want a change of pace, if you want to find out how to live a life that sucks the marrow out of it, seizes the day, then just listen to what Paul has to say. 
because he tells us just how to do it. First thing Paul says that enables us to escape the boredom and to live wisely, he says, is to use our time well. And there are lots of, lots of words in scripture that have the idea, the connotation of time. You have day, hour, season, time, age, and others. Generation. They all have unique associations. But the main word used here is one called kairos. And the word is used in in many different uh, places in the scriptures. But it's most easily understood if we kind of put it in juxtaposition to another very commonly used Greek word, chronos. Now, chronos basically talks about the flow of time. And so, for instance, when you look at your, your Rolex Submariner, you know, Aquamarine, whatever, Mahoosies, and you watch the, I'm looking at mine right now, uh, you, you watch the second hand go around, that's chronos, right? That's, you're watching the succession of moments just flow by. The flow of time and events that are associated with it. That's, that's what chronos means. But Tyros, the word here, refers to a moment, a specific point in time, and especially one that is significant or favorable. And so in many respects, in his own way, Paul is saying, seize the day, seize the moment, grab it. Now here's an example of what Paul means. There was an American writer and educator by the name of John Erskine. He lived around 1879 to 1951. And um, as an early, uh, in, in his, uh, one of his writings, he said that he learned the best lesson he ever learned when he was 14 years old. He was, like, uh, like many young uh, people, learning how to play the piano. And his piano teacher asked him, how long do you practice? Now, when he thought about it for a second, he says, well, he says, I sit down, he says, and I, and I try and practice at least an hour or more every day at a time. And the teacher says, don't do that. He says, when you grow up, he says, time won't come to you in long sections like an hour or more. He says, practice in minutes whenever you can find them. Five or ten before school, a few in addition to uh, your, uh, your chores. Now spread the practice throughout the day. And he says, what will happen is that music will become a part of your life. Well, Erskine said that by following this advice, it actually happened. But more than that, the writing that he really loved to do, he was able to do in all these little snippets of time. And so, for instance, his, his most famous work, uh, Helen of Troy, he wrote as he commuted on the trolley from the university where he taught to home. Almost all of it was written while he was commuting. It is good advice. And that is precisely what Paul is saying. He says that you and I need to redeem the opportunities, the time, the moments that God gives to us, precisely because they have come to us from him, and because they are filled with rich opportunity to enjoy and to uh, create and to experience things, to give ourselves to things that are really worthy. Now that, that almost seems a little overwhelming to think, okay, I've got to worry about every single second that comes, and you know how I'm going to fill it. Well, Paul's not really getting quite down to that level of things. It's a little more modest in his mind. He just wants us to see that God brings us opportunities, and that when those opportunities come, take advantage of it. 
have a small list of things that you can do, list of things that you can put into 5 and 10 and 15 minute uh, periods of time that will move forward some particular goal or interest that you have. Which of us does not know the pain and the sadness and the disappointment, really, of wasted hours, wasted days, wasted years? But that's not what Paul wants us to focus on. He doesn't want us to focus on the pain of what's been wasted, but on the fact that every single day God anew brings us new and wonderful opportunities to take a hold of, and that we are to do that. Well, the second thing he says that we ought to do in order to live wisely, to have a satisfying life, to suck the marrow out of it, if you will, he says, is to understand God's will. Now, usually when we hear these words, we think that he's talking about get to know the scriptures. And that's not a bad thing to do, of course, because that's where God tells us about himself and what he wants from us and and how those things are to come about. But that's what Paul has sort of in the background. That's what he's taking for granted. That's not his point when he says these particular words. Because in these words, he is, as he's already stated, more interested in wise living. Not just in knowing the facts about the scripture, knowing what God wants. But how is wise living engaged? In other words, what he's saying here is, what does it take for us to sort of understand or get a sense of how God is working and moving in the world around us? And perhaps in our own lives. And that when we perceive that, to live in accordance with it. One man put it this way, he said, Wisdom consists in perceiving where God is going and then jumping on his bandwagon. I, I do think that that's what Paul's saying here. Find out what God is doing and go there. Go with it. But how do we do that, practically speaking? Well, I do think that there's one thing we have to, we have to confront in our own lives. And that is the, the fact that we ought to be very suspicious of the plans that we have for our lives. In 1855, Adolf Monod wrote a, uh, a, a tract. It was part of a larger work called A Dying Man's Regrets. And Adolf Monod was dying and he had regrets. And in that small booklet, he wrote down what those regrets were. Every Sunday, some brethren would come and visit him by his bedside because he couldn't get out of bed any longer. And he would speak to them about his regrets. They would worship together and pray together. And the very first regret he lists is this one. He says, I regret having regulated my life too much by my own plans. And what he goes on to say is that we're inclined to make plans, and that's not bad in and of itself. But the problem is, is that it is our self that tends to make those plans. A self which is deeply affected by sin and tends to disregard both the wisdom and the command and the plans of God himself and his requirements and his desires for us. So he says the tendency is is that we plan our goals, that we arrive at our way by our strength. 
He goes on to say the only way that we can really escape this, this gilded trap of our own plans is to enter God's plans by, by following the example of Jesus. And when you think about what Jesus did, it's really very interesting. Right? Jesus went out and prayed all night about plans, right? Who he was going to choose for disciples and where he was going to go. He was going to go to Galilee to preach or whether he was going to go to Pernium or where he what he was going to do. Fine. But on the way, he met circumstances. He met people. He met opportunities that he always engaged. Sits down by a well and there's a woman whose who's just heart is broken because she's had so many husbands. And the man she's living with now is in her husband. And her soul is crushed. He ministers to her. Thousands of people follow him out into the field. They have no food. He feeds them. Children come up running and, 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 and jumping on his lap. And his disciples try and shoo him away. And he says, let them come to me. And he ministers to them. These things that, well, might they be interruptions to his plan? Well, if he were sinful like you and I, yeah, we might consider things like that interruptions to our plans. Now, I'm sorry, I'm on my way to Galilee and I don't have time for you. Excuse me very much. But that's not what Jesus does. He seeks the Lord as he makes his plans. And then as he goes, he he allows God to unfold before him in the circumstances which come, the things that God wants him to be about, the things that God wants him to consider, and the people God wants him to meet and to engage. And remember that Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that this is precisely what God does for us. He says, where is workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them? And so the very same thing is true for us. God presents good works to us, whether it comes to us in our planning or through the circumstances that we encounter. And in those things, we have opportunity to seize the moment, to take those opportunities and to engage it as God's will. God's perfect will and to seek him in all that we need to encounter those things in a godly manner now in order to do this it, it's important that we have an eye that's, that's really that's, that's set on asking God Lord what do you want me to do today what, what, what do you want me to say to this person in other words it requires a willingness to submit and depend upon God and to believe that he will actually speak to us and lead us and do it. And that's hard. And there's a very common mistake we tend to make. Because when we make plans, our plans in our own minds are what? They're big and they're important, right? In fact, nobody, others, nobody else's plans are bigger or more important than our own. But the simple fact of the matter is is that God most often has us engaged in small things. If you look at your life, how much of your life is engaged in doing small things? You do the laundry. You take the trash out. You change the oil in the car. 
Right, you go to work. You talk with your spouse or your child or your parent or co-worker. Life's full of these, these small things. And we tend to think that small things are petty things, that they don't really count. But because God ordains that our lives are so full of those small things, we need to understand them properly. And one of the ways to understand them properly is to think of it from God's perspective. Consider, when God constructs a snowflake or a blade of grass, do you think he takes more care or less care with that than he does in ordering the stars and the planets as they swim in their galaxies? I would say no, he does not. Do you think that God is more occupied and gives greater care to making Mount Everest or Mount Washington rather than a grain of sand on Malibu Beach? I think not. And the reason is, is because God, because of who he is, is fully engaged in all of that. In his creation and its preservation and its end because its end is his glory, is his name, is his purpose. He is engaged in the small things just as important as the large ones. I submit to you, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we think about Jesus, the thing that is most primary in our minds is the fact that he allowed himself to be crucified, he died, he was resurrected from the dead, and he ascended to heaven. And because of that, we have our salvation. Well, not quite. Not quite. That's the big stuff that we focus on, right? But you want to know something? It is crucial that we remember that from the very moment of his birth, in every small detail, in the slightest temptation that came to him every single second he was alive, he did what the Father wanted him to do. Right? He didn't give in to the temptation to call his friends' names when they badgered him. There were a thousand, a million times in the smaller things of life when he could have sinned and did not. And you know what? If he had sinned just once, if he had let go of one of those small little things as being insignificant, it really doesn't matter if I do this, you would have no salvation. For the one crucified would have not been the righteous one. He would have not been the holy one. And his atonement would not have atoned for you. You see, we must understand that the small things we do that God puts before us are not small to him. They may be to us, but nothing is small to God. And as he adds those things together, 
as our life becomes a chain, if you will, of small good deeds done, what comes forth from it shines the glory of God. Well, finally, Paul says that the wise Christian who wants to suck the marrow out of life and and live a life that is deeply satisfying and enriching is one who is also filled with the Spirit. And he begins this by contrasting it with being drunk with wine. Now, being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit are not meant to be an exact parallel. It begins, in a certain sense, with an exact parallel, but it's only superficial. I mean, it's true that if you're drunk, right, you're under the influence of alcohol. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you're under the influence of the Spirit. But that's about as far as it goes. Because the rest of it is contrast. For instance, Paul says here that that being drunk with wine is dissipation. That means alcohol is a a depressant. It it, it screws you up. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was uh, not only an eminent preacher in London in the last century, but also was a a medical doctor, wrote this. He said, drink is not a stimulus. It's It's a depressant. It depresses first and foremost, listen to this, the highest centers of the brain. They are the very first to be influenced and affected by drink. They control everything that gives a man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power, and we're not talking about physical balance, we're talking about emotional, psychological, cogical balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a man behave at his very best and highest. But drink is something that immediately gets rid of control. That, indeed, he says, is the first thing it does. That's what Paul's saying here. Don't give yourself up. Don't take the highest of what you are as a person created in the image and likeness of God and do damage to it. He says, don't depress it. He says, instead, fill it up. See it at its best as you are filled with the Spirit of God. Of course, that begs the question, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? Well, this is a long topic. Because if you're going to go through all that it doesn't mean and all the apparitions of people, what people say it means, but biblically it really doesn't mean, we could be here forever. So I'm not going to go there. But let me just tell you how the word is used elsewhere in Scripture, just to begin to give you a picture. First, it's used to describe the wind filling a sail and carrying a ship through the ocean. So to be filled with the Spirit is basically to be moved by the power of God and directed where he wants it to go. The second idea is of of permeation, of of salt permeating meat and preserving it and giving it flavor so that those who are filled with the Spirit are filled with the the likeness to God that, that permeates not just themselves, but all that they encounter. The third idea is of of total control. To be filled in this sense is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. In many respects, it's the opposite of what he's talking about, about being controlled by alcohol. One of the things we uh, we hear of a lot today in the news is, you know, he was was controlled by rage. Well, 
one can give themselves over to control, to rage. And that's precisely what this is about. Who controls you? Sin or the Spirit? So what by God's grace is our part? Well, one of the first things we have to do is is confess our sin and surrender our will and do everything we can so far as it lies within us to surrender ourselves to what we know God wants us to be and to do. Basically means dying to self. And there's no more difficult thing in this world than for us to die to self. Because we're the most important things in our own little world. And for us to give that up, it's not only scary, but it's literally impossible apart from the grace of God and his enablement. But it is possible, given those two things. Because as John said, John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, but the same principle can be applied to the Spirit, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. That is, there must be less of me and more of him. And we will go through times and we are so full of ourselves, people just feel like we reek of ourselves. And there will be those times when God, by his grace, just subdues that in us. And we smell the sweet savor of Christ to people. We're never going to be always one or the other. But there must be a striving on our part and a recognition on our part that we seek as much of the Spirit's fullness in our lives as we can possibly get. Because this is a command of Paul. It is something that we are to pursue. It also means that we're to live with a, with a conscious presence of Jesus Christ. This is, this is not easy to do. I remember when I was first a Christian. It was easy. Everywhere I went, Jesus was my co-pilot. You know, I mean, he, I, I just talked to him like he, was sitting in the, like he was sitting in the passenger seat. That's the way I prayed. Everywhere I went, he was there, I was there. We had a little conversation going on. But you know, familiarity breeds contempt. You know, and over the years, you know, those, those good practices can go the way of all flesh. They, uh, they drop off and somehow we convince ourselves we're still as uh, spiritual and, uh, and uh, intimate with the Lord as we've ever been until we find out that we've been lying to ourselves and we're far more bankrupt than we ever want to admit. And then, then we're shocked. How did I get here? How do I get my way back? But with the Lord, He's always there to call us back, to remind us of His love, And to enjoy the sweet, sweet forgiveness that is ours, always, because of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we find that he produces such incredible things in our lives. In fact, that's why Paul ends with this this wonderful list of what is, is characteristic of a life that is filled with the Spirit. It says they speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. In other words, there is this, there's this sense of which God is really great. I love him. I worship him in my soul. And I worship him in the presence of others. We give thanks to him for everything 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because we recognize how good he is to us and we submit we subject ourselves to one another in the fear of Christ which basically means we we honor and acknowledge one another as image bearers of God and as those who are indwelled by his spirit just as we are and we submit ourselves to them for Christ's sake These things, the fruit of the Spirit that we read of before in Galatians chapter 5, these things and more are characteristic of the life of those who walk in the fullness of the Spirit. Let me read you a brief quote taken from an article entitled, Bored Sick. It says, it can give you a backache, headache, insomnia, chronic fatigue, even impotence. Studies have shown as a direct link to alcohol and drug abuse. It's also been associated with gambling and hypochondria, and millions suffer from it. It's boredom. What are the most common causes of boredom? Psychologists list unfulfilled expectations, unchallenging jobs, too much speculating, and I love the last one, too little participating. Too little participating if you take your time if you take Paul seriously and use your time wisely if you understand what God is doing and and, and you move to be doing what he is doing as well if you are filled with his spirit then boredom is not something you're ever going to have to worry about you're going to be too busy sucking the marrow out of life and carpe diem you're going to be seizing your days seizing your moments seizing your opportunities not perfectly But there'll be increasing excitement and fullness of your life in these ways. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for uh, your confronting and convicting me and comforting me as well uh, over the course of this week uh, concerning uh, these matters in my own life. And trust that uh, you have been doing some of that in the lives of uh, these brethren as well. Not for our own sakes, Lord, but for the sake of your name and your glory. That our lives might continually uh, be drawn more and more to reflect the kind of life that you want us to live. The kind of life that is enviable by others who look at us and ask us to give a reason for the hope that is in us in the midst of uh, times of of tension and uncertainty? How is it that we can live with joy? How is it that we can engage uh, life around us uh, with any kind of uh, vigor and purpose, meaning, satisfaction? It is because of you. And because you have given us these things as gifts, pray that we would not squander them. But that every day, Lord, you would remind us of the opportunities that lay before us this day to serve you, to enjoy you, to engage you, to embrace you. And in that, to bring you glory and praise. And to advance the gospel so far as it lies within us to do so. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.